I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, so today we're going to be getting into some very genuinely uh, difficult issues for people, not intellectually, but more emotionally. There are some issues here that, that, that hit, hit people's hearts, usually the first time they hear about this. But I'd much rather you hear about this from a Christian worldview and perspective than hear about it from a skeptic that's going to try and twist it uh, to your destruction. So there are some issues. In fact, what we're going to talk about is like how the Bible was changed. I'll put it that way, but that really is, this is how the skeptic would put it. The skeptic would put it this way, how the Bible was changed. To be more accurate, though it's less of a clickbait title, the true issue here is where the manuscripts disagree. Where the ancient manuscripts disagree about what our New Testament should say. Now, we talked a lot about that last time. We went over the number of variations. There's like 400,000 variations amongst our over 20,000 manuscripts. Um, We we have that. We have over 20,000 copies, about 5,800 plus in Greek alone, of our New Testament different parts of the New Testament, not necessarily the whole New Testament 5,000 or 20,000 times. Now, what we do is we reconstruct the original from these. This is just review. This is just review. We reconstruct the original New Testament from these leftover manuscript copies of it. Now, like I said, there's about 400,000 variants. We went in detail last time uh, about how this number is used out of context, out of context to deceive people to imply that we have no idea what the original Bible said which is not remotely true. It's just completely inaccurate and um, not scholarly to say something like that. The number is actually really small. Given that we have over 20,000 copies, you would expect a lot more than 400,000 variants normally, especially because even one letter being different here than over here, that's a variant. And so you'd expect this number to be a lot higher than it is. But it's not just the number itself. The number is sort of pointless because that includes... Things like uh, obvious slips of the pen, spelling errors, stuff you can't even translate out of Greek into English. And so 99% of the issues that are in these 400,000 variants are non-issues, meaning they don't affect our question about what really is in the the originals of the New Testament. They don't have any bearing on what the original said. Less than 1% are what you would consider something we should really think about. Well, tonight we want to talk about specifically those ones, the ones we should really think about. Last week I talked about the ones we don't need to worry about. Now let's talk about the ones we might quote-unquote worry about, although I'm not personally worried. But before we do that, I just want to try to put into perspective. When I use big numbers like 400,000, even I don't know what that means, okay? I mean, giant numbers just, we get lost in giant numbers. So if you could break it down, this is a little bit of a simplification, but I think that's what we need to understand the issue. If you could break it down, you look at, we've got about, um, for any particular verse in the New Testament, we have on average 1,600 accounts of that verse in history through our manuscripts. About 1,600 accounts of that verse. Now, if you consider 1,600 for each verse by 400,000 variants, what it comes down to is this. If you broke it down really simply, imagine if we only had two copies of the New Testament. Two ancient copies, and in those ancient copies, they had variations in 250 places altogether. So we have a copy here, a copy here. There's 250 places where they disagree with each other in some way. 99% of those variations don't matter. They're spelling errors or it's obvious, slip of the pen, things like that. Just word order being moved around, stuff that doesn't affect in Greek doesn't matter. And so 
what you end up having is two or three places of difficulty between these two manuscripts. That's the more accurate summary of our 400,000 variations that the skeptics often like to talk about. The, the large number of copies is why we have so many variants, which is why we can be so confident about the original. The, the variants aren't a problem. We have great confidence about the original. I like what Dan Wallace said. Dan Wallace is a very well-respected scholar in this field. Um, he does all the big hoity-toity, smarty-pants stuff in this field. And he says, these differences are, for the most part, absolutely irrelevant. That's his summary of these differences. Now, Bart Ehrman would agree with that. He's, he's our skeptic in point, right? And he would agree with that, but then he would never tell his students that. He would just agree with it and then move on attacking the Bible. Skeptics never talk about the bigger picture. Why? Because it's not powerful to say to Christians, you Christians think you have the Bible, but it's been copied and recopied so much that less than 1% of the passages require some critical thinking to consider their original reading. And whichever original reading you take, it doesn't impact your doctrine. So there. Because that's the real story behind the variations and the differences in the manuscripts. Um, so last week we talked about the quantity of variants, and this week I want to talk, about, talk to you about some of the more quality variants, the, the few. These are the rare moments when variants actually matter. Rare moments when the, um, the manuscripts don't agree, and it's not just like a word order or slip of the pen, that kind of thing. And that's why I'm doing a PowerPoint presentation, because me just reading these things to you, it would just, it would not fit, it would not stick. So I want to show it to you visually. So we'll do some tough questions, but we're going to work through these things and stick with me to the end so you can get the big picture. Because what the skeptic again does is they quote half the truth and then they leave you with a full conclusion based on half the evidence. We're going to look at the whole picture here. So um, I would recommend as I'm getting into this, uh, there's a great book called The King James Only Controversy. This is a fantastic book for reading this work. Um, Yes, it was written in response to a particular King James Only type of controversy thing, but it's a fantastic book for laymen who don't know these issues to understand these issues. Um, If you really want to get deep into it, I recommend reading more than one book and listening to more than one source, but if you only were going to read one, I'd recommend this one. If you want to go a little bit deeper into the things that we've been talking about this past couple weeks. So let me give you some examples. All right. Matthew 16.20. In the, um, the more recent manuscripts we have, which is what the New King James Version is based on, the, the, the younger manuscripts that are from more from the, the 10th century and on, for the most part. Um, it says this, Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Then, uh, the NASB here representing the older manuscripts, they say this, Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This is a variant. Do you notice it? It's the word Jesus. This is what's considered a meaningful, viable variant. This is one of the few 1%, less than 1% locations where you go, hey, the manuscripts are really seriously not in agreement on here. There's a group that say this, a group that say that. This is what we call expansion of piety. Through the manuscript tradition, as the later, the later and later you get in the tradition, sometimes you have the word Jesus added to the Christ. Or you have, instead of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. You have basically making names and titles longer. We even do this today. I've had times where I'm like, I'm, I'm preaching or something like that, and someone says, you should, you should really say Lord when you say Jesus. And, and it's beautiful. That's a great thing to do. But then when you take that into 
the manuscript tradition, it, it just, these names get longer. It may have been accident. It may have been just to say we're giving God glory. We're calling him the Lord Jesus. But that's what that is. Probably the, um, the older reading, the NASB is the more accurate. But does it really matter? Is your, your faith impacted by this? Not so much. Um, the Christ here is Jesus, for sure. <laughs> it's, not, it's not wrong. It's just a question of whether it was there or not. Let me give you an example. This is actually really frequent in our meaningful variants. This is very frequent. Expansion of piety. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 4.18, we have the addition of the word Jesus. The passage is, yes, it's talking about Jesus. It just adds Jesus to the title, you know, Lord or Christ or whatever. In Matthew 12.25, it adds Jesus. In Mark 2.15, some manuscripts add Jesus. There's more. They'll add Jesus. They'll add Lord Jesus. They'll add Jesus Christ. They'll add Christ. So it might say, Lord, they add, they add Jesus. It might say, Jesus, they add Lord. It might say, Lord Jesus, they add Christ. That's some of the later manuscripts that do that. Typically, the, newer, the younger manuscripts don't do that as much. So it's an expansion of piety. That's what, they, that's what the smarty pants people call it. Here's more examples. And there's more. These are all examples of that expansion of piety. Now, this is, is this, does this worry or concern you? Probably not. Probably not. But if you'd only heard the skeptics summarize the errors or changes, how the Bible was changed, well, it'd freak you out. But then this is an example of how the Bible was changed. Oh, yeah, they added Christ at the end of Jesus sometimes. Oh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> okay, so um, not an impactful thing. Here's another example of not an impactful change. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the, the, um, the younger manuscripts, the ones that are from like the 10th century on, I'll put those on the column on your left, and then the column on the right, as I show you examples, will be the older. Does that make sense? And then I'm just showing you what translation it's from, because I found a translation that, uh, that represented that variant. Okay, so like I said, it's a little bit complicated, but now you know why you have to see it with your own eyes. You can't just hear about it, because you'll be like, what was the difference? I didn't hear it. So here we go. King James Version says, Now after that, John was, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. The NASB... Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Difference, the word kingdom. Was he preaching the kingdom of God? Or, excuse me, the gospel of the kingdom of God or the gospel of God? This, you guys, is a typical representative of a meaningful, viable variant, of, a, of one of the rare less than 1% variants. These are, these are the ones that matter. They don't. Many, the majority of them don't. There's a couple to do. We'll get to that at the end. But I want to get you, let you understand the full scope first. This is a representative example. This is what uh, Dan Wallace puts this up as his representative example of the typical type of variants they'll struggle through. Um, was it gospel of the kingdom or, or gospel of God? Oh, well, interestingly enough, the same manuscripts, which the NASB comes from here, that say preaching the gospel of God, they leave off the kingdom. Those same manuscripts have in Matthew three times the phrase gospel of the kingdom of God. Either way, the gospel is called, in, in any variations you pick, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. It's also called the gospel of God. It's called the same things. They're just synonyms for the same thing. And here we have an example. Let's do another one. Matthew twenty four thirty six. The, um, the, the younger version over here in the New King James, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In the NASB, showing the older 
versions, the, the generally speaking, I'm, I'm simplifying it, but the older versions, it says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Now, some people would say, well, maybe the, uh, the as, as time progressed, maybe some scribes decided to leave off the phrase, nor the son, because they felt like it, it, it took away from the deity of Christ, that he didn't know something. Well, that's most certainly not what happened. How do we know that that's not what happened? Well, because the same scribes that don't have nor the son in their later copies, they have it in Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says the same thing. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but my father only. However, this, this nor the son got, got dropped in one spot, it was kept in the other for sure. So either way, we know that Jesus said it this way. We may have more information from one gospel versus the other. The earliest manuscript to drop the phrase nor the son that we have is in the 10th century. That's the earliest manuscript we have that doesn't have that phrase. So they, so the newer translation, New, New American Standard, they tend to think it probably was there originally because it's in the younger manuscripts. We'll get into translation issues more next week. But, um, so if, if it says, if it leaves off not the son, it's maybe not technically accurate. But yet, even in the context, without the phrase, not the son, it implies that Jesus is excluding himself, if you just read the passage in context. So um, that becomes, you could make a big stink about it, but when you get more information about it, it becomes not a stink. (laughs) Because, again, it's in in the parallel passage in Mark 13, in the same manuscripts that don't have it in this passage in Matthew. Matthew 21, 12, the question here is, is it the temple of God? Or is it the temple? Okay. I'll take either one. I mean, I mean I'll take either one. Either one, it, it's not going to impact. In fact, so far, we'll take either one on all of these and we'll be okay with it. Um, but, then, but if you want to be a stickler about it, which I do, I'm like, but which one was it? And it was probably temple and not of God. This may have been another type of expansion to piety type thing, possibly. Um, maybe someone was just used to saying temple of God. Who knows? Who knows? We can just guess at why a, a change happened here and there. Um, either way, there's only one temple in mind. For certain, he went to the temple in Jerusalem, drove out the money changers and all that kind of thing. There are places where entire verses are missing from certain manuscripts. And this becomes a, a discussion of well, does that verse belong or not? So I'm going to give you an example of that now. In Mark 7, 16, we have in some manuscripts, the later ones, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then we have in the older manuscripts, the, 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 the more ancient ones, represented by the NIV, we don't have that verse at all. That phrase is not in there at all. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. How did this happen? Well, this is probably, at least according to smart people, <laughs> This is probably a result of what's called harmonization, or a more fancy term for it, transposition, where they say, well, Jesus used that phrase in other places, and so then somehow through the course of copying, it was, it was copied onto this spot as well. Interestingly enough, you might be thinking, well, did, were the scribes, is it a conspiracy? They're, they're purposely leaving this phrase out because they don't want anyone who has ears to hear to hear? Like, why is it there? Well, in the same copies... It's in, that it's missing, it's in, in Mark chapter 4, verses 9 and 23. So it's in there twice. Jesus did say this in two times in that same gospel, in the same places where it drops it in verse 16. In verse 16. And um, 
it, anyways, this doesn't become a serious issue. Um, it may be that it was added because it was trying. It was a conclusion of Jesus's teaching in Mark four. It's like he teaches, and as a conclusion, he says that he teaches, and then as a conclusion, he says that. So Mark seven, he's teaching, and then maybe that's one theory. Do we know? We don't know. We we guess. We guess. Um, yeah. Matthew eight twenty nine. Here's another example of harmonization. It says, and suddenly they cried out, saying, "What have we to do with you, O Son of God?" Um, excuse me, what do we have to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Then the other version is, what do you want with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Now, other than just different styles of translating, the actual manuscript difference is the word Jesus. It's just Jesus. Other than that, there's no difference here. Um, Well, the phrase Jesus is probably included in the later manuscripts because it's included in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, which is a parallel passage. And there may be a scribe who's thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is, is mentioned in Mark one twenty four, so it must be here. It should be here. Maybe it was dropped by previous scribes on accident. Not maybe realizing that it's okay for them to paraphrase what someone says and not quote them word for word every time you're saying something about what they said. Does that make sense? You guys following along? Let me give you another example. Matthew twenty sixteen. It says, so the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, I should have underlined uh, that phrase, for many are called, as well as, but few are chosen, because that's the difference here in the text. So is it true that many are called and few chosen? Well, this is, again, a harmonization issue. It's added probably from Matthew twenty-two fourteen, where Jesus says the same thing and has the phrase, for many are called, but few are chosen. So in a sense, describes uh, sort of... To put it generously, they save you the time of looking up the parallel passage because they've included the content there. So it's, it's all biblical material. It's all biblically accurate. It's just being imported from another place and added here where it wasn't originally. And again, it's the same scribes that have it in Matthew 22 that don't have it in Matthew 20. So it's not like malice or the deleting of a text intentionally or something like that. Matthew 25:13. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The NIV represents the older manuscripts here. It says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Of what? Well, the context would still indicate that it's about the coming of Christ. And it's probably imported into this passage because it's in Matthew 24, verse 44 in the same book. In the same context, talking about the end times in this sort of apocalyptic section of Matthew. And Jesus refers to, he says this, let me quote Matthew 24, 44. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we get the context brought into it. And it's probably a, an, either an interpretive idea or a, or a harmonization that brought into the text in some manuscripts. So the, the textual critic looks at all the manuscripts and tries to decide, should I include this in my translation of the Bible or not? That's their question. Let's look at another one. Matthew 27, verse 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. And there's this big addition that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. New King James here representing the newer, more recent manuscripts, I should say. And then the NASB representing the more older ones. This is also... Now, if all you knew is this was added, you, you would, it would probably bother you more. But when you find out that this, again, is a harmonization, it's added from John nineteen twenty four, 
Let me read to you John 19, 24. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So this may have been something like that, like an interpretive thing or a harmonization thing of the scribes thinking, oh, well, this should be in here. It belongs there. So they, so they did that. Interestingly enough, if we didn't have all these manuscripts, we wouldn't know that this is what happened. We only know that these are there because we have so many manuscripts, we can figure it out. Now in Mark 9, 44, 46, and 48, and there's an interesting spot. It has this phrase, verse 44 and 46 of Mark. It says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now in the NASB or most of, more of the modern translations, it just drops Mark 9.44 and 9.46. They're simply not in the text. If you read the numbers, you'll just see they just get skipped over. And there's just a footnote. Now what's interesting is they both, all of the manuscripts, they have it in verse 48. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the question isn't, did Jesus say this? It's, did he say it three times or did he say it once? Did he say it at the conclusion of, of the whole you know, three phrases? Or did he say it? A phrase, say it, say a phrase, say it, say a phrase, and then say it a last time. That would be the question. Um, this is, again, this is a meaningful, viable translation that has no impact on our, on our interpretation of the text because he's always, in the whole passage, he's still speaking about the place they go, which is where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's just a question of how many times he said it. So there you go. There's another example. Um, any question on this? Some of you have question faces on, so I just want to give you an opportunity. Okay. All right. Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1. This is one you may be familiar with if you've studied Romans or if you've sat in it when I was teaching it, if you remember what I teach. In Romans 8.1, it says, uh, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now that phrase was probably added later on. And... It, it, it could potentially even change your interpretation, depending, but that sort of depends on how you interpret it. Because believers who see this, Romans 8.1, as the, that whole verse being all authentic, they'll still generally interpret it the same way as those who only take the first part of the verse. Um, this, how did it get in there, though? That's the question, right? How did this get in there? Well, it's from verse 4 of the same chapter. In the exact same chapter, we have these exact words, this exact teaching, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And it's still talking about the same people. So it's just a duplication, a duplication of the same verse put in there, the same part of a verse put in there twice. Um, if it was on accident, they probably just scanned the page wrong. They're copying, they look over here, and they, you know, and then you look for, for your spot again, and then you scan and you look for your spot. So they ended up repeating a phrase. Um, I've done that before. Um, I've done lots of various types of typo issues. Um, yeah, some people think it might have been intentional. Um, even if it was, we know. <laughs> so, and even if you have a Bible that includes uh, Romans 8.1, if you look at the footnotes of your Bible, it will tell you this is not in the earliest of manuscripts. And so they're trying to keep you informed. Then Matthew 15.8, here's another example. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The NASB representing the the oldest copies we have does not include draweth nigh unto me with their mouth. Now the reason for this, this is a, a type of addition that's not uncommon in those few variants that we're actually talking about today. This is what happens when the scribe reads a quote from the Old Testament and thinks that he should quote the whole thing, 
rather than just the portion that was quoted by the text itself. So it's from Isaiah 29, 13. And what the scribe did was he added the rest of the verse from Isaiah. That's the, they draw nigh unto me with their mouth. That's from Isaiah 29, 13. He just added, it'd be like if I said, according to you, hey, for God so loved the world that he gave. And that was all I intended to quote. And years later, someone adds to that. They're like, his only begotten son, Mike, you forgot to, you know, write the rest. That whoever believes in him, you know, it could get longer and longer the more you wait, probably. And it's all legit because it's all scripture. It's just scripture being added in another spot. So this is not really a problem for us. It doesn't change much. Um, they're just rewording things to match uh, the, uh, the, the fuller quote. Not rewording, but adding text. Now here's another really interesting variant. I think this one's exciting to me. This is, this is kind of fun. Uh, Revelation 1.4 says this. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming. From the seven spirits before his throne. The New King James representing a different, uh, older textual variation, right? It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. Now, the issue here is, is it the one or is it him? Is it from the one or from him? The problem with from him, and you might not notice this much in English, but especially in Greek, is when you say from and you end it with him, it's not right. This is really bad grammar. It's like embarrassingly bad grammar in Greek. But the Greek of the older ones reads that way. It reads embarrassingly bad grammar. And all the evidence points to the idea that John wrote with really bad grammar in this spot and in some other places in Revelation in particular. So some scribes later on, they read this bad grammar and they fix it. Maybe they're thinking, oh, this was a mistake. Like the copy I'm copying from must just have a mistake. I'm just correcting it to its original. It should say from the one. So we have some manuscripts that say from the one and some from him. So then theologically, then we go, well, why would it say from him with bad grammar? And the reason why, if I could give you the short version, it's in the middle of his sentence, John quotes the Old Testament. And he says, from him, or ha'on, which is, which is when God said, ego emi ha'on. This is, tell him I am who I am. And then he's quoting that, and this comes off as bad grammar. But what happens is, and this is Revelation. Revelation does this all the time. That's why there's these bad grammar spots. It's because mid-sentence, he just quotes the Old Testament word for word so that you might be able to go there and read it. It'd be kind of like if I said, do you guys believe in we the people? Now, later on, someone who might realize, not realize what I'm saying here, out of our culture and not knowing that, that that's, that's an important phrase to, to, Amer- to Americans, or it used to be, <laughs> then outside of this context, somebody later might change what I'm saying. You don't mean we the people. You mean like us the people. You, you don't mean we the like, you don't. Do you believe in we the people? Mike, are you an idiot? That's bad grammar, Mike. And don't realize that what you're doing is you're quoting something to bring that to their minds. So it's a quote of uh, Exodus 13, excuse me, 3.14, Exodus 3.14, where uh, God says, I am who I am. All right, John 5.4, here's another example. And this is another example where an entire verse is missing from some of the manuscripts, and this is the verse. Um, The context, of course, is that that Jesus heals this man who's who's sitting there by the pool at Bethesda, and he heals him. This is the verse that's missing from the older manuscripts. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now this is pretty significant because it's not found 
in any other place in the Bible. This is, this is just new information. If it's not in there, it's not in there. This is probably addition, and here's how it probably got into the later manuscripts. It seems as though it was commentary where they would, they would describe it, have the text, but they'd also have commentary, maybe written above it or below it or to the side of it. And that then later scribes took that commentary and imported it into the text, probably not sure because they're copying years later from, from a copy. And they're not sure, wait, was that commentary or was that text? I don't understand how the scribe meant this. So then it gets put into the text. It seems as though someone was trying to say, because here you have in John 5, there's, these, there's ill people, sick people, and they just come and they gather at the well, and that's where they gather. And there's no explanation given as to why. So maybe the commentary is, oh, we have this tradition that there was this angel that came and stirred up. Now, personally, I'm happier without this verse because it's a little strange to me. And if it's in God's word, I'm going to teach it and I'm going to believe it because God's word has, that, has earned that authority to tell me that even though I think it's weird, it's true. But, but it makes more sense to me when I find out, oh, there's a variation here and the evidence points to it being a commentary from some scribe or somebody, but not being the original text. Um, so most modern translations will put this verse in a footnote or they'll put it in brackets with a footnote explaining why. Mark 3.32 and the multitude sat about, about him, and they said unto him, Behold thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. That would be the King James Version. Then we have the, the newer translations which add, add the phrase, and sisters. Your mother, your brothers, and your sisters. So, was Jesus' sisters involved or not? Does, do, do Jesus have sisters? Does he not have sisters? This is an interesting question. Now, this is an example of an unresolved variant. Everything I've showed you, there's they're pretty well scholarly agreement, but here's a verse where they're like, we don't know. Where I mean, yes, they have these opinions, but these have these opinions, and the textual history is rather complicated, and it makes it hard to know for sure which one it is. So was Jesus' sisters there or not? Now, theologically, not a lot rides on this. I should say, nothing rides on this. We have affirmation that Jesus had sisters from Mark 13, 56. It doesn't hang on this verse. Um, so, well, I don't know. Did he have sisters or not? Yes, we know that. Um, was, it, was it possible or likely that his sisters were there? Sure. Were they there? I'm not entirely sure. It doesn't really bother my faith, to be honest. Here's what we know. Either it says without, it, or it's you know, mother and brothers, and, or it's mother, brothers, and sisters, these, one of these is for sure the original, so your Bible will probably include both, depending on the text and the footnote, to make sure that it's communicated the Bible to you, that you've got it right there. Mark seven nineteen, And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. This is another unresolved variant, and the question is, is it that they may keep their tradition or establish their tradition? These are different words in the Greek. It's not just different translations. And keep or establish. Now, the issue here is, not only is the manuscript tradition difficult to discern, but the words in Greek for tradition and keep are really, really similar. And so they're not really sure how to judge. You know, why would it have switched between this and that? Uh, no real motive to, to switch it between the two. It's just like a slip of the pen or someone was hearing it and they were copying by ear or something. And they're not sure which one it is. Were the Jews trying to establish or keep their own tradition? Well, inevitably, they were trying to do both. I mean, <laughs> they're both true. They were trying to establish their traditions as well as keep them. I mean, you don't do one without the other. So it doesn't really impact us much, but this is an example of an unresolved variant. Mark ten twenty four, And uh, here the question is, 
Is it hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Or is it just hard to enter the kingdom of God? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is an example of another variation where either one is possible. So what do they do? They include both readings. They'll have it in there and then they'll have a footnote so that you know that there's a variation there. And you can read it. You can, we're, we're well informed here. It's not like the Quran. Where's your footnotes in the Quran? Well, <laughs> oh, no, they burn those. So, so yeah, no, we, we've got the information here. There's no great grand conspiracy. Um, those footnotes, which you've largely ignored, have this information and some. And they even put footnotes in there when they probably shouldn't even bother because it's, it's not really up to debate, you know. But they put it in there anyways because they just want to try to help us be well informed, which I appreciate. So does this mean that we've lost the text when we have areas like this where we don't know which one is the right reading? Well, no, no, no. You see, we know one of them is the right reading. So we have the right reading. The question is, which one? Does that make sense? It's not like anything could be the right reading. It's not like maybe Jesus said how hard it is for people who own large corporations that serve Twinkies at their parties to enter the kingdom of God. Like it, it doesn't, there's no chance that it says that. It's just, these are the options. Now that is a good overview of just about all of the variations that you're going to find that are worth talking about. Now that should be your general opinion when you, oh, there's a variation. It's probably something like this, or it's amongst the 99% that don't matter at all that you can't even translate into English. But then there is the big three. These are the big three. These three are probably places in our, in our Bible, which are probably not original, which were added for various reasons. We'll talk about them right now. And these three sections are very different examples. These three spots in our Bibles. Very different examples than the rest. There's nothing else like these. They're atypical examples, uh, but they matter to us. And I want to take an honest look at them and be very realistic and truthful about the reality of it. But also, it should not hurt your faith or trust in the word of God. And I'll, I'll come back to that as we go. <clears throat> so 1 John 5, 7. Here's the, uh, the two different versions. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Then there is the, the NASB version here. says, For there are three that testify, and it does not include anything about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now this has become a Trinitarian proof text for a lot of people. This is how we demonstrate the Trinity with this verse. And it's a tr it, the thing is, the verse contains true information. <laughs> this information is true. But... This is an example of addition. And the evidence in the history of the, of the manuscript is intensely against this being part of your Bible. It's incredibly against it. It's like really one-sidedly against it. Let me give you some examples. The earliest copies don't have it. The less than 10 manuscripts of our wealth of information, less than 10, have this verse. None of them are from earlier than the 10th century. So we don't have it appearing until after the 10th century. That, to me, that's pretty significant, right? I mean, you don't have to know manuscript traditions that much to know that that matters. The Greek church fathers never quote from it, and you would expect them to because they were arguing about the deity of Christ all the time. So this would be a go-to text. You know they would use it. You'd use it. This would actually absolutely be a go-to text. Um, so then the question is, well, Mike, how did it get there? Um, well, it, oh, I don't know. I mean, it may have been commentary. 
It may have been somebody's commentary that, that made it into the passage later on. It may have just been an orthodox edition where someone's just like, you know what? The Trinity's orthodox. I'm going to add this, this concept in here. This is an agreed upon thing by the church. So they added in there, which I, I rather they wouldn't do it, but, but that's not as malicious as other stuff. Um, but the issue is people were really committed to this verse and they made a stink about it. In the 1500s, when Erasmus is putting together his Greek text that became, that became the, what they used to create the New King James and the King James Version, when he's putting together these Greek texts, he, in his first two editions of this Greek compilation of this is our Greek Bible, um, he did not include this verse. And a lot of people made a lot of stink and a lot of noise about it. And so finally he includes it in there. It ends up being in the King James Version. It's in the King James Version. And then once people are used to it, and it, you know, for instance, there was a, a, a Bible version where they printed their Bible without 1 John 5, 7, and their sales were rather low. They reprinted it with 1 John 5, 7, and their sales went up. Because it appears to be like some sort of like conspiracy, like you're attacking the deity of Christ when you take this verse out. Well, you're not taking it out if it was never there. That's the thing. We're not taking it out if it was in fact never there. Now, what does this verse add to the doctrine of the Trinity? Nothing. How, how do I know that? How do I know this verse adds nothing to the doctrine of the Trinity? That if we lose this verse out of our New Testament, we haven't lost anything on the doctrine of the Trinity. Because the doctrine of the Trinity was well established before this verse existed in reality. Like before it was around, the doctrine of the Trinity is well established. The early church fought tooth and nail over this issue, and it was well and firmly established without this verse. But this is where I bring up the issue. When I talk about these big three issues, these particular three, the other, the other issues probably you don't care about, but these three you're going to care about. There's a head thing and there's a heart thing going on. See, mentally we can understand, okay, so these, don't, these aren't part of our original text, or probably are not, but we still have the original text and I have the faithful accounting of the word of God. That's the head. But the heart just goes like, ah, and freaks out. Because you're like, but are you telling me something that I thought was the Bible was not the Bible? And that really freaks you out. Um, that is a heart issue. And you have to sort of wait for your heart to catch up with your head. You have to wait for your heart to catch up with your head. And as we get to the conclusion, after I show you the other two, I want to wrap it up and give you guys a big picture view of all these things that should help. I hope it'll help. Um, so we do not base the Trinity on this verse. The doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely forced upon us throughout the scriptures. You have no option here. If the Bible's true, the Trinity's true. There's no choice. So, um, we want the truth. We want the original. And as a Christian, I'm like, I want, I want the solid original. And while this is true information, that doesn't mean that it was in 1 John originally. And so that's how I look at it. Let's look at the next slide here. Okay, so this, I'm obviously not going to read this whole passage to you, but this is the entirety of the passage. Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, it's the ending of Mark, or as scholars often call it, the longer ending of Mark. This is not new information. I'm not making it up as I go along here. This has been known about for a very, very long time. The longer ending of Mark. It is the longest single variant in the entire New Testament. There's nothing longer than this, and there's only one other that even comes close. There's basically two 12-verse variants, and then there's everything else is maybe a verse or two, and more often than not, it's a word that you're talking about when you have a, when you have a significant variant. Whereas most variants are just letters, but Mark 16, it's the longer ending of Mark and it does seem, I say seem to be an addition. Um, I am not personally convinced one way or the other. 
although I will admit the scholars seem to largely be convinced it doesn't belong in the New Testament. But it, it unlike, say, 1 John 5, 7, it is in some very early manuscripts. But there's a few manuscripts that don't have it at all, and so then they're like, hmm. So let me, let me give you some of the details. It's in most manuscripts, actually. The majority of the manuscripts, most of them being older. It is not in some of our earliest and best manuscripts, as in these seem to be the most faithful records for us. It's not in some of the translations into other languages. It just does, it's just not there. Mark just ends with uh, verse 8. And it is included with critical marks in a number of manuscripts, which means that they knew that something was questionable about it. Like they put marks, they, they put like little asterisks and things like that on it to say, hey, I'm gonna, including this here, but usually that means that the copyist is looking at multiple copies and maybe he sees it in this one, but not in these two. And so he includes it, but he puts marks on it to just tell you that that's what he's got. Another thing, and this is kind of a big deal to the scholars, is it does appear in different forms. Sometimes it's Mark 16, 9 through 20. Sometimes it's Mark 16, just verses 9 through 11. It's a much shorter version. And that's it. It's just the three verses added there. <clears throat> then there's another different shorter version. Then there's another version, but it's a combo of the, of the shorter version with the longer version, both put together. Now, the scholars say, okay, we think that this means that what happened was scholars felt Mark ended very abruptly, and so they felt the need to make an addition, to add like a little ending onto the, onto the Gospel of Mark. We see this in the book of Acts. Acts ends very abruptly. It's just like, oh, well, that's it. It's over. Um, and so Mark seems to end abruptly, and so they maybe felt the need to add an ending. And then that may be why that ending came in multiple forms, at least four different forms. We see this ending taking, taking shape. But they all faithfully record up till verse 8. So then the question is this. Well, then where did this ending come from? Did they just make it up as they went along? Where did this ending come from? Well, the ending seems to be, and this might comfort you, it seems to be an amalgam of information from Matthew, Luke, and Acts. Meaning that they took biblical information and used it to make an ending for Mark that reflected the other texts that teach those things. So they still let scripture be the authority on the issue. The last question I, I would probably want to ask on this is, what do we lose? If we lose Mark 16, 9 through 20, are we, is this changing our doctrines? Is this changing our beliefs? Is, what is this affecting and impacting if, if it in fact is not part of the original? The answer is nothing. We lose nothing. I have literally heard skeptics say, you drop Mark 16 and you have lost the earliest account of the resurrection. I'm like, no, that's actually 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> that's like not even in Mark. But the crazy thing is Mark 16, without this ending, still ends with the resurrection of Christ and the discovery of, of the resurrection of Christ. It still ends there. We haven't lost the resurrection. And like fools have gotten up and said this and then repeated it and repeated it. That Mark 16 has no account of the resurrection of Christ. That's silly. That's silly. I mean, literally, all you have to do is read two verses to prove this wrong. Like, on the topic that you're talking about. So, like, I wish, I wish, I wish skeptics were skeptical of their skepticisms instead of just quickly and immediately believing any attack on the Bible must be true because we hate the Bible. So, of course, something must be wrong with it. Um, there's only one thing you might potentially have a problem with. If you take out Mark 16, and that would be if you're a snake handling church. Verses 17 and 18 say this, and these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons and they will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. 
this this is part of the Acts information. It may have come from this account of uh, Paul being bitten, but he survived fine. He wasn't injured, that kind of thing. Uh, the healings and stuff we read about in the book of Acts. Um, now, I just want to point out, conservative Christians, most, the vast majority of us, strong, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, we don't think we're supposed to be snake handling, okay? Even with this verse, we don't think that. But it's the only verse proof text for the people who do think they should do that. And so they would be losing their... Uh, they're, not that they would stop. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Once you snake handle, you never go back. I don't know. But who knows? Who knows? Um, so any any quick question on Mark 16? Yeah. So like all of that, like the ending with what happened after that? Yeah, I'd recommend you read it uh, to find out really the details of what it says. Uh, read it. Read Mark with it. Read Mark without it. It ends with the woman being in great fear astonished and they're in great fear but that's very markish because if you read jesus does something and they're like blown people are blown away and they're astonished and then he moves on to another story so it actually it's kind of consistent with the way mark talks um yeah so anyway let's move on to the, the last one of the big three. Oh, yes yes unfortunately we don't lose the great commission we still have to go out there and preach the gospel darn <laughs> yeah right um, okay, so the very last one, the very last one of, of the big three is John chapter 7. And you know this passage, you know it well, and this is where the heart issue comes in. John seven fifty three through 8, 11, it's the, it's the parable of the woman, this parable, the story of the woman caught in adultery. She's caught in adultery, brought before Jesus, thrown down, and then they're like, what do you think we should do? And he says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. Then they depart slowly, and then he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, or who accuses, she says, no one's left to accuse me. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That beautiful, I mean, it is beautiful. That beautiful, wonderful, awesome, lovely, encouraging, heartwarming story is very possibly, probably not originally in John. This is probably the passage. In fact, I should say more than possibly, it is pretty much guaranteed. Mark has much more evidence for its longer ending than, than this passage does for being in John. This is where it'll, it'll impact your heart. I can't change the facts. If it's not there, it's not there. Um, what we do, though, is we say, God, we believe in your word and trust your word enough that we want to know what it really says. Whether or not it has a passage I love, I want to know what it really truly says. The, the history of this, the information about John chapter 7, it's just not there. There's, there's, there's almost no evidence for it. The first passage that has it is, I believe it was in the 10th century, and then it's included like on the side. And then we have it also in a, a later uh, copy, like in the 14th century, it's finally included in the actual text. In the 14th century, it's finally in the actual text of, this, of the passage. And then it was included, but once in there, it's such a heartwarming passage that if you take it out, people will come to your house and beat you up. Um, it's a beautiful and, and lovely and wonderful passage. There are some good reasons to think that it's not part of the original passage. Um, among them are the ones I mentioned, but also... It sometimes appears in John here. It sometimes appears in John. Other times it's in a different area of John. It's later. It's earlier. And in one case, it, it appears in the Gospel of Luke. 
So the scholars say this means it's a passage looking for a place in the Bible. Like it doesn't actually fit somewhere and, they're, and that they, they want it to be recorded. So they're trying to find a place to stick it. That's an interesting way of putting it. That may be the reason why it's appearing in different locations. It's moving around in the manuscripts. So then the question is, well, then where did it come from? Um, well, the same scholars, the same scholars who say it's not original, most of them say it is historical. Most of them think it, it involves, all, it has all the earmarks of true history. Uh, Bruce Metzger, he's, he's one of the biggest hoity-toity guys you can quote when it comes to textual criticism. And he, uh, he's a believer, and he says, I, I don't think it belongs in John, but I do think it's a true story. And this might explain why it floated and stayed around for so long, because it was an oral tradition about something that Christ did that eventually made it made its way into the passage because they wanted to include this tradition about what Jesus did amongst with the Gospels, the stories of what Jesus did. So the thought there is that John 7.53 through 8.11, and that's specifically that passage, is not part of John, but is probably a historical account of Jesus and something he actually did. That would be the modern scholars and their, their, their perspective on it. Uh, could they be wrong? Sure, they could be wrong. But we should probably have reasons to think people are wrong and not just assume that they're wrong. So those are the big three. Those are the big three. So why is it... Um, that's the question. Why, why are the questionable passages included in any copies of my Bible? Why did I ever see it in there in the first place if it's questionable or, or possibly for sure not there? Well, here's the reasons why these will these probably will continue to be printed in Bibles in some form, in brackets or in a footnote. Somehow it'll be in there, just in case. Well, if it is the Word of God, we want to make sure we continue to pass it on. If there's any chance that this is an original reading, we want to make sure it's continued in the tradition. That makes sense. And the other is what Dan Wallace calls a tradition of timidity, which is basically, I don't want people to come to my house and beat me up because I got rid of the woman caught in adultery. Now, if, if that passage has ministered to you, it's a beautiful passage, a wonderful story, it's all those things. If, if it's ministered to you, I mean, God can use that to minister to you. I don't doubt that. God could use a story of any woman <laughs> to minister to you and impact your life and transform things. The question we have is, was it originally part of the inspired writing of the Gospel of John? Um, other people also, they say that it's, it flows better. The passage flows better without it. The, it. It doesn't seem to make sense in the flow of thought of John. To me, this starts to get really subjective, so I don't really worry too much about flow and things like that because you could look at any passage and just decide that something doesn't fit the flow and you want to throw it out. So Now I want to talk to you about other major issues. We've talked about a lot of stuff. What other textual major issues are there? We talked about a bunch of ones that really don't matter. We talked about three that sort of matter. Here's the other ones. Oh yeah, there's none. That's it. That's it. Now, why do, I, why do I want to make sure to point this out to you? You need to understand the implications of the variants. You need to understand there's a limit to them. There's a limit to the ones we have to think about or concern ourselves with. We need to ask the question, does this call, if, if there's these issues, maybe these three big spots, does this call the entire New Testament into question? And the answer is no. It affirms the entire New Testament. Why? Let me give you a couple reasons. One, we can actually make judgment calls because we know what the New Testament actually says. You couldn't say this passage doesn't belong unless you knew what belonged. Does that make sense? 
If we really didn't know, we wouldn't have a list of anything. We'd just be like, I don't know what it says. You don't know what it says. Some people say, this doesn't belong. And then say, so you don't know what belongs at all. But again, if we had no idea, that would be the problem. <laughs> we want to be able to say, and we can, this doesn't belong because this is legit over here. This is pedigreed. That's what's going on. Um, the other reason why this affirms the New Testament is because that's it. I just gave you pretty much the harshest, most difficult stuff to deal with. Congratulations, you passed. Very good job, my very young Padawan. So let's get, get your notes ready, okay? Because I'm going to give you a list of doctrines that, deba- that depend on these debated or difficult passages. Now, here's the list of Christian doctrines. I want you to write the word none because there aren't any. There is not one Christian belief that centers around one of these issues that we've talked about. Not the deity of Christ, not the virgin birth, not salvation by faith, not the atoning death, not the resurrection, not heaven, not hell. Just snake handling. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully. (laughs) So, but this is really remarkable because check this out. Even if you got together all of the best readings and put them together with all of the worst readings over here, and you, and you accidentally grabbed the wrong Bible on your way out the door and got the one with all the worst readings, do you know how much heresy you'd have? Zero. Zero. This is remarkable. Even if you made the wrong choice on variants, you would not have heresy. I think that this is God's preservation to his people, maybe not in the way you would have thought he would, but it's there. But it's there. He preserved his word. So this is big picture stuff now. We can, we can summarize because I've, I've drug you through all the, all the muck. Is it possible that we could discover a manuscript right now that is so totally different than the previous ones that it completely causes us to change our Bibles? Only in the sense that it's like possible that, you know, Kermit the Frog gets elected president. Like technically, I suppose a guy could name himself Kermit the Frog. Like there's some weird, no, it's not going to happen. That's the point. This is not going to happen. And here's some evidence. In the last 150 years, we've discovered a lot of new, super old manuscripts. And in those new, super old manuscripts, you know how many totally new readings we found of the, of the Bible? Zero. All we've done with these new, super old manuscripts is confirm which of the readings we already have is more likely to be the original, which explains the difference between some of the translations of your Bible. Some of them more modern, some of them more ancient. That is absolutely remarkable. We're not getting new readings. We're confirming old ones. We're just getting more confident about the original. As time goes on, we're only getting more certain of the original text. We're getting more confident about our Bible, not less, which is pretty, I mean, it's like the opposite of entropy happening right there. It's pretty exciting. So I say to the skeptics, your hand is showing. <laughs> you know, that is when, you, when you're playing poker and your cards dip down and everybody can see it. Your, your hand is showing, skeptics. We can, we can see your bluff. We can call it. Because what you do is you give details, oh skeptic, like John 8, Mark 16, 1 John 5, 7, and you try to make everyone think that the rest of the Bible looks like these issues when the opposite is true. And here's how you know. Every time a skeptic attacks the Bible based on variations, they'll always attack John 8, Mark 16, 1 John 5, 7, because that's all they got. And they want to act like that represents all of the New Testament in question, but this is a lie. This is a bold deception that they're trying to pull off on people, which they cannot pull off on you because now you know. 
These are the exception, they're not the rule, and it is, it is evil and deceptive to present them as if they're the rule, not the exception. So this is my struggle, personally. My struggle is, how do I show you that the Bible hasn't been changed? Because that is definitely the case. It has not really been changed. Um, but the, the data, the information can be overwhelming. Um, well, good scholarship would do this. They would gather the, the, the good readings, the best readings, and compile it into a Bible that says, hey, this is, this is our, uh, our, our, our Bible. The skeptics would gather all the, the worst possible readings into a website and use it to pretend that the authentic readings don't exist. It's just deception. Some people want to use the exception to the rule as if it proves the rule wrong, but we have to remember the exception only exists because there's a rule. That's why it's an exception. So these passages prove that we do have the original readings. The ability to point to something and say that is not in the original only exists because we've determined from evidence that's the original. Let me put it in uh, more simple terms. Imagine if you had a fleet of trucks. You have 100 trucks. And you take your trucks to get inspected, get a tire inspections. And the inspection results come back. And they say, sir, out of your 116-wheeler trucks, we found three flat tires. And so you begin ripping your hair out of your head, what remains, and you're ripping it all out. And you say to yourself, no, no, does this mean all my tires are flat? And the inspector says, um, did you not? We did an inspection, and you have three flat tires. There are three problems. Out of your hundred trucks, there's three problems. Oh, but this means maybe all my tires are flat. No, if you're going to trust me that there are these three problems, then you should trust me that these rest of the tires are not in problematic situations. And so when we look at the scholarship and we say, okay, there's these, these, these areas of issue. Here's, a, here's an area where we have to use our brains and really think about it, really consider it. Then you should also trust that there isn't over here. But again, the skeptic tries to, uh, tries to trip people out. So has the Bible been changed by scribes so much that, it, that we cannot recover its original text? No, it has been copied by scribes so much that they can't hide the original text. That's the reality of the situation. It's copied so much and so frequently and so early on that you can't hide what it said. You can't change it. You can't get rid of it. It's absolutely remarkable that we still have the original, if not a little bit extra, <laughs> that we're aware of, that we're aware of. And it blows me away that even the additions, even those extra things that might be in my new King James Bible, are really beautiful things that I quite enjoy. Um, that I can do, okay, so this is not perhaps the original written word of God, but I still can see benefit in it, and I'm glad to be aware of it. Um, but we should be wise about it. So there's a head issue and a heart issue. Um, in your head, look, you've got no reason to doubt that we have the word of God handed down to us faithfully. In your heart, you might need your heart to catch up to your head a little bit because you might just be in a little bit of shock. Um, now, in, uh, in next week's study, what I want to do is we're going to move, you'll be grateful for this, we're moving away from Greek and, and foreign languages and all that kind of stuff. And we're going to be going into, uh, do one week on translations. I think this is a great segue, a great time to just stop and say, let's just talk about translations. You know, NASB, ESV, the NET Bible, the New King James Version, the King James, the NIV. Like, let's just look at and try to understand some of the differences here and some of maybe the quality differences um, between these things. So, let's pray. Um, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we're able to get through that massive amount of stuff just now. I hope and pray that all the details coalesce together to give a real and accurate picture of the transmission of the Bible to us from the time it was written till now. 
that we can look and determine and say, yeah, we faithfully know that the word of God has been handed down to us. And we pray, Father God, that we walk in wisdom, we walk in, uh, in faith, and that our hearts would not be attacked with deception. And we ask, Lord, that you would enlighten the eyes of people who might be sitting in front of and listening to skeptics who give half of the story and try to, try to then give all of the conclusions. But rather, we pray, Lord, that this information would spread, not just from this source, but from all over the place, would spread out, and people would get the full story. In Jesus' name, amen. Here's the thing. Some people might honestly be like, Mike, why would you show this to us even? Like, I was happier not knowing that. Because I'm just being honest. There's people who, it's not your head, it's your heart that just goes, that freaks me out, okay? Because I was like reading Mark 16 thinking that this is the inspired word of God. Well, in, in a large part it is. It's borrowed from Matthew and Luke and Acts. And so it's, it's the word of God imported to a different location. Um, so in a large part it is. But it might just bother you. But here's the thing. If we don't teach this in church to believers in a context of faith, in a context of the fullness of the teaching of it, where do you think they'll hear it for the first time? Where do you think they'll go through that, those heart tremors when they hear it and they go, that kind of freaks me out. And they're standing in front of their secular, ungodly professor whose goal is to deconvert them over this semester. That's why I want them to hear it in, a, in the fullness of the teaching of it, in honesty and integrity. I'll be very honest with the information, but from a faith perspective, so that it won't mess people up because that's the whole point. They quote these things to mess people up. And I don't want that to happen. I don't want that to happen. First time I heard these things, it was from unbelievers attacking my faith. And I didn't know what to say because I'd never heard that before because nobody taught me that at church. And so um, that's why I think it's worth going over it. Yeah. So, all right, you guys, um, thank you for enduring. Um, You now know more about these issues than 99.9% of planet Earth. And um, even though you will not remember everything I've shared, when the time comes that these issues pop up in your life or someone else's life, I totally trust the Holy Spirit can bring back what you need to know at that moment, that little thing then you won't be able to get deceived or you're watching a, a show with your mom and, and, and it's, it's bashing the Bible and you can be like, pause and be like, actually, mom, did you know? And then you can stand up and stand for the truth of God against these deceptions. Mm-hmm.